Bang bang, what is up you guys? Welcome to this free edition of Scrump and Stank's Family Video. As you guys know, Stank and I have a Patreon in which we uh, deliver weekly movie reviews in the form of Scrump and Stank's Family Video. We've done such movies in the past as Mallrats, The Mummy, Twister, Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, the, the list goes on. And um, this month is a very special month as far as the Patreon goes. We're going to have the special episode 100 with Ryan Barkin, as well as a special uh, Q&A with Mr. Barkin himself, the CEO of Pro Wrestling Tees. And uh, just as a, you know, hey, if you're not signed up yet and contemplating it, we figured we'll, we'll throw this last this last freebie out for a while, for for a very long time. Hopefully, we, we won't put out another free one like this. So uh, if you're contemplating, it's as low as signing up for five bucks a month. You know, you get the uh, free movie review and there's uh, different tiers. You know, you can be on the show if you'd like. Uh, just head over to patreon.com forward slash PWTCast and you can find all that information there. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy this review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with myself and Stank. <laughs> Bang, bang. What is up, you guys? Welcome to this week's episode of Scrump and Stank's Family Video. I'm, of course, Scrump. And this is Stank. I am so excited to be talking about this particular movie, Dave. <laughs> um, we're, of course, talking about uh, Quentin Tarantino's uh, 2019 hit, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'll start off with my history on this sure. because I like you're a big old fan I'm a big old fan of Tarantino as a whole but like yeah. when you're walking into um our current office now like I, I don't know you saw it over on the wall mm -hmm. I have for, for no apparent reason other than he loves me and won't say it uh Frank and Melissa yeah. they got me uh it's like a like 11 by 16 autographed Quentin Tarantino poster of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then for Christmas, Johnny got me one of, there's in the movie, all like the mock posters for all like the movies yeah. that he did. He got me a canvas of that made. Um, Cause I just, I love this movie. Yeah. I, I first went to go see it. It was me, Julio, uh, Julio's girlfriend, Lisa, uh, Vinny, some girl that Vinny was with. I think maybe Moses might've been there as well. I don't, I don't really remember, but um like we went to go see it there's a movie theater here in chicago called the music box they'll play a lot of movies in like 38 millimeter mm -hmm. like 8 millimeter 16 millimeter and we i was just like fuck yeah like I, that's where i had gone to to see uh jane silent bob reboot so mm -hmm. i was like yeah i'm like let's go and it's it's very old timey theater like like the seats suck uh, you know, like it's just it's. But there's something about it. Yeah, because I'd all we'd also gone to see the Joker there as well, like later right. on in the year. But that particular movie, and it was just, it was one of my most memorable movie experiences. Like, very much the first time seeing Endgame is one. You know, mm -hmm. like every time I would see Black Panther like in theaters and stuff. But this one, it was just like I loved this movie. I love this movie so much. I legitimately saw it in 38 millimeter and 16 millimeter and regular digital and IMAX. Like I saw it maybe five, six times in theaters in every format that I could watch it. Like I, I hate 3d. If they would have had it in 3d probably would have watched it in that. And yeah, so I'm, I'm so excited to be talking about this movie because like I always had the debate, what is my favorite Tarantino movie? And I, I don't know. It's, it's always one of those, like it's this, no, 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 it's this one. Well, all of them are good. But in different ways. Yes. Yeah. yeah like it, it's 
like do you consider Kill Bill one and two one movie or two movie? You know, it, right. like it's just it's, so it's always that internal struggle. And for a while, I was like, this one is my favorite, and it's so weird because like I I can relate to Leonardo DiCaprio in this for no like you're both handsome boys both handsome boys obviously yeah. but like like so like i i just i feel for him where mm-hmm. he's just like he's at the end of his rope he knows you know he is he doesn't have that many hits left in him basically and it's just like there's just something about that like i empathize and i think it's partly because of wrestling because through wrestling there's so many wrestlers where mm-hmm. like like so we were talking about Mick Foley. You know, he's at the shop yeah. this week. We're recording this. This will probably come out like a week or two after. But we we're we, he was there, and one of my favorite WrestleMania matches ever is Mick Foley versus Edge at WrestleMania 22. And the impetus behind that was one Edge. You know, was kind of the rising star, so they wanted to give him a match at WrestleMania. Right. But also, Mick Foley had never had like a big WrestleMania moment. He had had matches. He'd had moments, but never had that big WrestleMania moment. And he very much in the same vein was someone who was just like, I, I need to, you know, like it's, it's now or never essentially. And so he went out and, you know, I think he had a few matches afterwards, but very much like, you know, Rick Dalton in this movie where he's like, this is, I'm going to do this show on this Western and Hey, maybe it becomes a thing. Maybe it doesn't, but like, there's just something to me about that specific story in any form of, you know, Mm -hmm. books or comics, whatever the case is. And yeah, like I just, I love this movie so much. Like it's very much, uh, like one of those movies where like if someone, like if I have a date that comes over and they're like, Oh, let's watch a movie. And they suggest that one. I'm like, let's watch another one because I know what you're trying to do. And that won't work because I'm gonna wind up just paying attention to this movie the yep. whole time. Yep. But like, what's your history with, with this one? Well, for, first off, two things. Yeah, Mick Foley was at the or he is currently at the shop signing stuff, and uh, he brought up independently this movie. Yeah, and that Edge match that you're talking about, like, which blew my mind that like you know the synchronicity of everything. But anyways, um, so as as are you, I am a huge Tarantino fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of a movie of his that I don't like. Like, pro- I'd say my least favorite movie, probably, probably Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. But I don't hate it. I like mm-hmm. it a lot. But um, so I, I went into this with very, very high hopes. And I'll be honest, after my first viewing in the theater, I did not like it. Me and my brother were both like, what is this? And, like, if there's one thing Tarantino gets accused of a lot, it's that sometimes, or two things, a lot of pastiche where, like, he's kind of emulating a lot of genres that he loves, which Mm -hmm. I think is one of his better qualities, actually. But And then, two, a lot of people say there's a lot of style over substance. And upon first viewing of this, I thought, wow, this was that cranked up to, like, 11. And I was just like, I don't know what it was. Some, something just didn't click with me upon my first viewing. And then I watched it again. And and also, I will say, after watching it that first time, even though I felt that way, there was something about the movie that just stuck with me. There's this really like warm, romantic, pervasive feeling of old Hollywood. Yes. And it just ble- It just washes over you. So like, it, with all my gripes, that was there. It was, it was almost like you were living back in that time. Like I don't know what it's like to live there, but I imagine. 
But after watching it the second time, and then the third time, and then the fourth time, because then I started wanting to watch it again, I started appreciating everything that he did. And, um, you know, we won't spoil it right away. We'll get into it while we talk about it. But he does take some liberties with actual history. And, you know, there was a part of me that's like, wow, that's kind of fucked up. But then I thought, it's movies. And this is also the same guy who in Inglorious Bastards, yes. uh, Hitler's life comes to a very different end. Yes. And so I think all the hangups that I had, there's a lot of people that had those same hangups and then didn't get over it. And then they just trashed the movie. I eventually got over it. And then I was able to like really appreciate all the all the nice like tributes that he did to old Hollywood. Um, you know, you, you saw really classic spots. Um, and this was one of those things too, where uh, Quentin Tarantino is very meticulous about world building, and then also about shots and references, and you know, even stuff that seems innocuous is some reference to like some old Brian De Palma film or something like that. So. I looked at this as like a real love letter to something he loves to do. And with that lens, I was able to really appreciate it more. And, you know, it's not my favorite Tarantino movie, but it's it's probably up there in the top four now. Mm-hmm. So um, I went from hating it to cherishing it. It's a, it's a really good movie. Uh, we had the conversation... Uh, where I was like, I, I was like, there's a movie that I saw that I can't remember what it is. Oh, yeah. It was Hail Caesar, the Coen oh, Brothers film. Yeah. And that one also very much kind of deals with old Hollywood. And to me, after this film, there's certain things like this, like romantic romanticization of like old Hollywood. Because mm-hmm. even in like Boogie Nights, you get like the tail of end of it. It, it. To me, there is something about that. There's something interesting to me, like yeah. when very much in the way we treat like professional athletes now was the way movie stars got treated then. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some people nowadays who, like, oh, yeah, you know them, but, like, I don't feel very much like with the wrestling, where, like, wrestling doesn't make superstars anymore. They don't right. make The Rock. They don't make Stone Cold. Last one, you can even argue John Cena. John Cena right. was the last star that they made, you know? But they don't really do that anymore. And I there's something with Hollywood where, like, that you know, before it'd be like, oh well, uh, Tom Cruise is in that movie, Will Smith is in that movie, it'll guaranteed hit. Mm-hmm. Not anymore, you know. Like it just it doesn't happen. And but like back in this day, like y- you could, you would just yeah. pu- you would put a Rick Dalton in this film, and it would be a mega hit, a mega hit, mega success. Like they like Burt Reynolds. Mm-hmm. They don't make Burt Reynolds anymore. Well. Yeah, I, I look at Hollywood, well, because they used to have the studio system, so they would lock up, like, a star, and he would show up in, like, all the MGM pictures or something, and he was the MGM guy. Um, and I very much view it almost like um, like late-night television. Like, when you think of, like, the great, like, late-night hosts, you, you always think of, like, Johnny Carson, right? Mm-hmm. There's no more Johnny Carsons. And you could say, you know, maybe that's good, we got more... More channels, more hosts. You can even argue these guys may do it better. They're smoother. Production values are better. But there was something about, like, there's one guy, and he had the entire nation's attention. And he was good at what he did. He was affable. And I think that's what we had in, like, old Hollywood. Like, if if you took, like, a movie like Gone with the Wind and made it now, no one would see it. Mm -hmm. They would say it's long, it's boring, blah, blah, blah. But back then, that was, like, gospel to people. And so there's something really charming about that. And that's that's what makes Rick Dalton's story so heartbreaking and potent is that he had that and then he lost it. And I, I also think that there's a little bit of an element of 
like if you have a job where uh it's a skill position i'll say like i you know from my perspective as an artist i think most people have like at least very low grade imposter syndrome you always think oh i've made it on luck alone and you forget about all the hard work you did and you said so they're gonna fight figure out that i'm no good and you can see that dawning on Rick Dalton throughout this whole movie. And like he starts to develop a stutter. And he's like, duh, 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 oh, I'm an idiot. Oh, what did I do? I, I fucked everything up. And, you know, there's there's something to be said about having that mindset. And then that's what also starts making you unravel even more. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of, like, feelings. And it brings up your insecurities. And like I said, these were things that I didn't recognize when I first saw it. But, like, all the subtext started popping up. I'm like... This is actually a very smartly done film. No, very much because like you think there's some actors who they get a second chance. Mm-hmm. You know, you think to like most famous, you know, let's keep it in the within the world of Tarantino. And that's what's beautiful about Tarantino. Exactly. Like yeah. he finds a way of just like I'm gonna make this person like relevant again. Yeah. Um fucking oh what's his face? Uh from Greece. John, John Travolta. Travolta. John Travolta, like yep. nobody gave a fuck at all about him anymore yeah. and then he shows up in pulp fiction and then all of a sudden it's, he's the coolest dude again. he's the coolest dude again he starts getting all these movie roles and it leads to like a resurgence and he has this thing where like again he'll rely on older actors like um in this one we have bruce stern who originally mm-hmm. his role was supposed to be played by burt reynolds yeah um but you know burt reynolds passes away and yeah like there's a staple of actors that he, ha- you know, he has, you know, yeah. like uh, Michael Madsen. Right. Like, the, you know, they'll show up. Like, Tim Roth was in this in a deleted scene as well. And I think that's, like, a very good... That's one of the things that I love. Because like, even, like, Kill Bill, mm-hmm. you know, like, it, it's the same thing in that where it's, like, it's a nice mixture of, like, people he, you're used to seeing mm-hmm. in Tarantino films along with, like, like, David Carradine, who, again, like... David Carradine to some a legend people oh my god they revere him and then to some who uh, who yeah. I've never uh, oh I don't know was, I've never heard of the guy same thing with like Michael Madsen too like he always shows up in Tarantino movies and he always shows up like ready to go but I cannot think for the life of me of any project he's done in between Tarantino movies so from from doing this so uh, one of the trivia notes that i had and i'll pull it up because it was uh i was like oh i had no idea he was in that so um the 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 cream cadillac the brad pitt drives actually belongs to michael madsen it it appeared in reservoir dogs driven by him Mm -hmm. um pitt and madsen also appear in thelma and louise as thelma and louise's lovers Mm. i've never seen thelma and louise i've seen like it's one of those movies i've seen clips and bits of it here and there um, but like, if you would have told me he was in that, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Maybe like he's, he's one of those actors where again, like if you tell me, oh, he was in this, he was in that. I'm like, sure, yeah. probably. But to me, it, it's almost, it, so it, it's almost like to me, again, everything is wrestling. Like there's some wrestlers where like they show up in WWE and they don't really, they're just, you know, yeah. they're losing to Sheamus in five minutes on an episode of Monday night raw. And then you take that exact same wrestler and you put him in like a New Japan or a Ring of Honor, and he is he is they're the, world beaters. They're, yeah, exactly. And to me, like then like there's certain people within that Tarantino universe who, who are like, I'll see them in their movies, kind of relegated to like, you know, one line that they speak. Mm-hmm. But I know, like, you put this motherfucker's gonna show up in the next Tarantino movie and have a whole soliloquy about 
you know, red apple cigarettes and it's going to be the most poetic thing and it's going to be beautiful and like, you know, people all over the world will be like, yeah, that was pretty nice. That was pretty cool. Yeah, well, I, I will say, and he's not in this movie, unfortunately he passed away, but like one of those actors that I really appreciate that Tarantino gave a chance to was Robert Forster. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you that don't know, he was uh, the bail bondsman Max Cherry in uh, Jackie Brown, which is my favorite Tarantino movie. But like... His last role, famously, he was in the, the um, Breaking Bad movie, if, yeah. if any of you guys saw that one. Yeah. So like he... One, he, he had this quality that I think... Tarantino looks for and he brings out of people where he looks like he's lived in the world forever. But he also had this weird like dad or grandpa quality. And I just remember like as beautiful as Pam Greer is and she is beautiful. Like I was transfixed on Max Cherry's character because of this guy, Robert Forster. And, you know, in interviews, he said that it, it really revitalized his career as as Tarantino's done with a lot of people. And he's like, people just weren't knocking on my door for stuff. And I kind of half retired and then Tarantino calls me, and I'm like, sure, I'll, I'll go in the movie. Yeah, I'll do whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, he, he's playing bit parts on, like, different shows and movies and stuff. And it's just, like, it takes someone like Tarantino that can appreciate stuff. And someone that could, he could, like, name movies you've never even heard of, right? And he's got a deep appreciation for. And he'll bring that stuff back. And that's that's one of the most endearing qualities of Tarantino. I mean, like, another actor and Michael Parks... Like, yes. So Michael Parks, he, I believe he was also supposed to be in this, but I mean, again, he, yeah. he, he passed. Um, or might, no, Mike, Michael Parks was supposed to be in Hateful Eight, but Bruce Stern came in and filled yeah. much like uh, Bruce Stern yeah. is who you call when you, you know, when another old actor dies mm-hmm. and, and you need someone. Shout out Bruce Stern. He's yeah. also very good in his own right. Yeah. Um, Michael Parks, someone that he mm-hmm. loved and revered so much that like he started putting him in his films so much so in Kill Bill 2 he's in there twice, twice yep. you know he plays the sheriff in, along with his son and, and he's, then and he's Esteban yeah, yeah. Uh, which like totally fucked up that he's just like ah we'll just give you a nice little tan and you know yeah. Bill you came to kill Bill I love Bill uh, you know so much that that like when Kevin Smith is uh, putting together uh, Red State he's like oh you should use Michael Parks Use Michael Park, same thing. Kevin Smith is just like, holy shit, yeah, of course. And then again, that gives him another little boost because you know he winds up putting him in Tusk. But like, there is something like I'm very much a person where like, so you know, and I always talk about it. It's funny we, we were talking Mc McFoley. Whenever I say bang bang at the beginning of a podcast, before you know, I've gotten like, oh, like McFoley, and it's like. Sure, I love McFoley, one of the nicest people ever. Yeah. But to me, it is a reference to a podcast that no longer exists. Uh, in Friesen Point, my buddy Dan Friesen, he had this podcast, was just kind of all over the place. And to me, that's one of those things where it's like, that is something that I love. And it, it relates to podcasting. So it's like, I'm going to shout that out. I'm going to reference that. You look around the office and it's just like, oh, I have all these Yu-Gi-Oh toys. And mm-hmm. probably, like, I'm very much someone like if I love something or someone, I'm going to you know talk about mm-hmm. them. Like Brendan Fraser, I'm always just like, I am waiting for him to be cast in like a Tarantino film or like an MCU film and just blow up. Because again, it's like there's a lot of these actors where it's like 
they've kind of just been sitting on the sidelines, yeah. like waiting, you know, waiting for their second bite at the apple. And it's like, come on, let's fucking let's get you let's know these, utilize these. Are these the only two vehicle? Are these really the only two vehicles that can like revitalize someone's career? Like, yeah. let's fucking let's get to it. Um, that again, that is something though that's like very appreciative of Tarantino. Like as a fan, because then sometimes that's how you discover people, mm-hmm. you know, like again, like how would I have known who like, uh, you know, Michael Parks was probably eventually I would have found, I would have right. seen him in something, you know, but like you have like a Harvey Keitel, you know, like in his earlier right. films and like, sure. I like, I, he's in a bunch of other things, but like to me, I he's just, he is always playing his character from Reservoir Dogs, yeah. you know? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's come up a couple times uh, over the course of, you know, episodes of PWT cast and even here uh, where we've been doing mu- movie reviews. But, you know, we often say, let the people that have made a difference in your life in entertainment, but like, it's a general rule for everyone, you know, tell them how much you appreciate them. And, you know, we talked about it, you know, my dog passed away and then we were talking about funerals and it's just weird how people give their flowers to people when they're dead. And, you know, you should always give your flowers to the people that you appreciate while they're alive. And for Quentin Tarantino, instead of flowers, he gives them movie roles. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and it's, it's beautiful. I I love seeing people get that new life. And there, there is something about Tarantino too, that they're getting like the best performances of their lives. Mm-hmm. For him, and that it probably comes from they've been sitting and they're on the bench, and they're like, Put me in, coach, put me in. And then Tarantino's like, Come on in. There's a certain thing with this film in particular that I found really cool that he did was he incorporated a lot of second generation stars. Mm-hmm. Um, in the film, uh, Bruce Willis's daughter plays uh, the best friend to um, Sharon Tate, mm-hmm. you know, that that's that. You see um, Uma Thurman's daughter later on in the film. Yep. Harley Quinn Smith, Kevin Smith's daughter, she had a specific role made for her because she auditioned additionally for the role of Pussycat and Margaret Qualley's character and didn't make the cut and she was like bummed out, but Tarantino liked her so much. Mm-hmm. So it's like, like Kevin tells a story where she was just like, hey, like I really want to be in this film. Like, can you, like, can you say something to Tarantino? And he's very adamant of like, I will never in my life do that. Right, because you one year we'd have a leg up on everyone being you know born into Hollywood. Right, but also like he's like I'm never gonna ask Tarantino for a favor. Right, you know. And then third, it's like that's not how you want to get movie roles. Right, taking and, the shortcut exactly. Yeah, and so you know he doesn't do that for her. She doesn't get the role. She's heartbroken. But then the casting agent calls and they're like Tarantino wrote this new role and it's not a speaking role. Like it's it's nothing major, but very much just like. Hey, I really liked you. Let's put you in this. Maybe in my next film, right? I'll find something for you. You know, but like that's just putting the door exactly. Yeah. So I think that's a kind of a cool thing too, especially because like Maya Hawk, Uma Thurman's daughter, yeah. like spitting image of her mother. Oh, and I remember watching too because she was in Stranger Things, mm-hmm. the last season of it, and I remember one being struck at how like adorable she was. Not trying to be a creep, but then I looked up who she was. I was like, "Oh, that's Uma Thurman's daughter." And then, same thing as I'm watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was like, "This chick looks really familiar." And she looked a little bit different than the Stranger Things. And then I was like, "Oh, that's Uma Thurman's daughter." And then, and then you you see stuff like that, and your gears start turning for 
Kill Bill Volume Three, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like it's it's very cool that uh, he's doing stuff. Like oh, that. and you know who else is speaking of Kill Bill? The little girl uh, in Kill Bill Two who plays her daughter. She's also in this. She's the guy. She's she's the person who sells uh, Brad Pitt uh, the acid lace cigarette. Yeah, which like so. Let's talk about Brad Pitt for a little bit too, because like yeah. I I'm someone. Leonardo DiCaprio could read the ingredients on the back of a box of rice, and I would be enthralled by it. And then, like, give him, give him the Oscar. I love Leo. He is someone again. Like, if you put him in something, I will, I will watch it. You I'm know, the opposite normally. Really, I like him, but like, I can't ever. He's always Leonardo DiCaprio in every role, and there's sometimes where he'll break that, like. um specifically in Django, mm-hmm. another Quentin Tarantino movie, as Monsieur Candy, he was great, but then when he, he always does this, like, when he's mad and he does, like, a yell, it always gets, like, a little shrill, and it's always, Leonardo DiCaprio, just, I'm like, oh, and I can't, but, like, in the Tarantino movies, love it. Mm-hmm. I love him. Yeah. Well, see, so someone that I wasn't as, like, in love with that I am now is Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt and Clooney to me were two guys that very, very much like wrestling. Like I like there'll be wrestlers like from the attitude era where they'll be like, dude, you would love so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure I would. And I, and I can recognize how like Ric Flair, for instance, right. I recognize how great Ric Flair is. Right. I understand the impact that he's had and, and all that. I do not for the life of me want to watch a Ric Flair match. Like, I just, I don't, I'm like, I get it. I understand. Right. I, I just, I don't want to. And for a very long time, that's how I was with both of them. Till, with Clooney, until I watched Up in the Air. Um, just great film with, with George Clooney in it. And then I was just like, okay, I, I started to turn around and I would actively watch movies with him in it. For Brad Pitt, that was this with me. You know, where it's like, I saw him in it and like, as Cliff Booth, I love him. I love the character of Cliff Booth. And, like it's actually be- and then I was like let me see I was like I know they've been in movies together and then cut to later on that night I binge watch uh, the Ocean's movies because I have again no self control yeah. Um but yeah like it's just like it's crazy to me like and it was one of those things that like like Tarantino talks about too where it's like just the like energy that like a Brad Pitt and a Leo bring to the mm-hmm. screen, you know, because it's just like, yeah, these are two, these are again, mega stars right. of that last, you know, we mentioned, they don't really make them that much anymore. These two guys are like the epitome of you can be the next Brad, you can be the next right. Leo, you know, like it's constantly when there's like a new up and comer, that is who, that is the catalyst. That is who they referred to as. And I, I, I thought it was awesome. And there's no like, Oh, this person got like less screen time. No, like right. it's just like the perfect balance of these two dudes. And like, like convincingly like, yeah, these are two best friends. Like yeah. more so than anything. I'm like, I want to see more of these two dudes adventures because like, you see how like down Cliff Booth is for Rick Dalton. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing too is, yeah, like you said, this was a movie celebrating old Hollywood and like that old Hollywood system. And if anyone has whatever is left of that old essence, it's those two people. Like you could put them on screen and it, it, say what I will about Leonardo DiCaprio. It's not because he's a bad actor. Like th- there's just something in my brain, but like, there's there's a reason why every time Leo 
is in a movie, everyone's like, he's got to win an Oscar for this. Mm-hmm. And same thing for Brad Pitt. It, it used to be he was handsome boy, but now he's handsome, talented boy. Yeah. And so it's really nice that they're not leaning on Brad Pitt's uh, looks anymore. And he, he just had this really relate. And who, who could imagine that Brad Pitt could be relatable to the everyman? But he very much was, you know, and it, it, it really worked. Um, and the same thing about their friendship, too. You, you Yes, you really believed, uh, what was his name, Cliff Booth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cliff Booth would take a bullet for his friend Rick Dalton. I mean, he basically, he yeah. does. Yeah, but like in real life, if, if I ever saw him and Leo walking down the street and I went to go shoot at him, Brad Pitt's jumping in front of Leo, I fully am sold on that. Another character in this movie, and I'll get a little bit more, you know, like the actual cast, um, is Margot Robbie. She plays Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. There's a, a quote that I, I would need to pull up here because um, there was some like, you know, fuss at first, like after the movie came out, where they were just like, she didn't really do anything. And the way the movie was sort of sold to like people as was, it's it's the story of Sharon mm-hmm. Tate's murder. Because even me, the first time watching, it's I was like, all right, I'm watching the Titanic. Because mm-hmm. I know what's going to happen. happen. You know, it, like, yeah. even when you at one point you see Manson, I'm just like, are you going to do it now? Yeah. When, like, when she's out, out and about town by herself, I'm like, are we going to see Manson again? But he said that um, she has, Sharon Tate has an angelic presence throughout the movie. Right. He considers her um, an angelic ghost on earth. And then to some degree, she's not even in the movie. She's in our hearts. I I get that. I understand that because especially upon like second, third, like the whole, like if you can cut out the scene, you know, again, where she goes out about town, that whole like 10 minutes or whatever, and it doesn't really affect anything in the movie. To, to me, it, it almost felt like in, um, in Dogma where you see like the character of God mm-hmm. in the line is more set and she's just, again, this just angelic presence kind of just frolicking through and like, no real effect on anything. And right. that's how I felt about Sharon Tate with this, where again, like people were upset where they're like, shoot, shoot, like it's Margot Robbie and she barely talks in this movie and she doesn't really have much to do. And it's like, I think it serves as a story, you know, because again, like as much it is, it is more so about the declining career of right Rick Dalton, who just so happens to live next door to Sharon Tate, as opposed yeah. to like, we're going to uncover the grisly murder of Sharon Tate. Well, and, and there's two things about that too. That I think I'm not sure a lot of people bring up, but maybe they did. But like one, while we were all kind of like ready for that, I don't know if we anyone really wanted to revisit that. I mean, it's a very big tragedy, mm-hmm. um, and and it's also something that really happened. I I don't know, I don't know one how tasteful it, that would have been, you know, especially when you're like fictionalizing a bunch of other stuff around it, but. Um, secondly, again, as a tribute to like old Hollywood, he really like the entire movie, you're like on the edge of your seat with suspense, which is a very like Hitchcock thing to do. I think Albert Hitchcock said, you know, like the problem with a lot of filmmakers trying to do suspense is they tell the characters there's a bomb on the train and then they're all trying to figure out how to, you know, it's going to blow up in a minute. Oh, that's not tense for the audience. But what you do is you tell the audience there's a bomb under the chair and these guys got eight minutes and they don't know. And you're watching in real time as they're about to explode. And that was the feeling the whole movie. Like like you said, you see Charles Manson and you're like, oh shit, is it happening now? 
And then, you know, even on Spawn Ranch, you're like, oh, he is, is, Spawn is, uh, what's his name? George Spawn. Is he really in there or did they kill him? And mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, like you feel like this gut churning feeling and then everything's fine. And you didn't have to have all the, any of the gore, any of the, you know, I mean, there was gore at the end of it, but like, and then, yeah, you have all the suspense, all the suspense, and it subverts your expectations. And then at the end, you get this real cathartic, violent burst of like, ah, oh, the bad guys got it in the end. And uh, I think that, to me, like, that that was one of the things I think a lot of people overlooked about the movie. He pulled an Af- Alfred Hitchcock on us, but he told us there was a bomb, but there wasn't really a bomb. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the trauma of the movie. Like, yeah. I, I very much, like, again, I didn't really want to revisit the grisly murder of this right. pregnant woman yeah and it's her horrific yeah. It's horrific yeah and her friends at like the hand of these like crazy motherfuckers but the way you do get a grisly murder and death yeah. and it like the reaction in that auditorium was insane because yeah. nobody, none of us, no one, you didn't see it coming. no one saw it coming. It was a little different, the you know the the subsequent times that I saw it because by then I'm pretty sure most people, it, you know, yeah. very much like, oh, wait till you get to the fucking ending of this. It's bonkers, yeah. it's crazy, yeah. But no, it's again that reaction. It's it's very much the same way the first time I saw Endgame, and you know you have the portal scene. It's like that visceral reaction that everyone has immediately. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, it's like that's why as much as. You know, we're in lockdown and some movie theaters are open. Um, I've gone once to go see since everything. No, since everything reopened, I haven't gone to see anything. But there was like that little bit of week where I went to go see uh, Tenet. Tenet, yeah. And it was just like, I I love, you know, I, I, I very much treat being at a movie the way you would treat like an opera where it's like mm-hmm. just, you know, I'm, I'm the same way with wrestling too, which I always feel bad when I sit front row and people are like... What are you bored? And I'm like, no, no, this is art, and I'm appreciating yeah. art. I'm not gonna sit there and be like, yeah, kick, kick MJF's ass. Yeah, getting yourself over for the yeah, camera? No, 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 that. I mean, listen, I'm there's not a hard cam that this man can't yeah, find. We're pretty uh, over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, let's 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 talk about like some of the other people in the cast. Like, yeah. like as I mentioned, it's, it's a big cast. I didn't I didn't put everyone down just because it's so much, and I'm sure we'll get through them like as we go. But you know, I mentioned Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth. Uh, Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, Emile Hirsch as Jay Sebring, Margaret Qualley as Pussycat, Timothy Oliphant as James Stacy, Austin Butler as Tex, Dakota Fanning as Squeaky, Bruce Stern as George Spawn, Mike Moe as Bruce Lee, Luke Perry as Wayne Maunder, Al Pacino as Marvin Schwartz, not Schwartz, Schwartz, Schwartz yeah. uh, Madison Beattie as Katie, Mikey Madison as Sadie, Maya Hawk as Flower Child, um, and I also have some trivia as well, just like random things. And it was a lot. Like I told you, the one thing that I found with this movie, a ton of fucking yeah. trivia for it. And it's so much so that I was like, ah, let's kind of just get to this before we, you know, we talk a little bit about the movie. Um, the producers uh, had some initial difficulties convincing Hollywood Boulevard vendors to allow the premises to be fitted with period facades to better reflect the 1960s, which also props because yeah at no point am i convinced that it isn't old-time hollywood yeah you don't see through anything to the point where they were taking sets and then they were doing like like period accurate advertisements yes in papers and stuff yeah it was insane uh 
so yeah, they, you know, originally they had difficult like with the uh, getting the vendors to agree to it, but after production wrap, um, most of them just asked if they could leave it as it is because they preferred like the period look, which mm-hmm. I think was awesome. Um, Margot Robbie, who of course portrays Sharon Tate, wears some of her Sharon Tate's actual jewelry um, that was provided uh, by Tate's sister Deborah. Um, when Cliff recognizes the Manson family uh, members from. When, when it's the the final scene and he recognizes all of them and there's the one scene where you know he's high on acid and uh tex is like he's like well, i know you and he's like i'm the devil and i came to do devil's business um that was an actual line that mm-hmm. you know the real life tex said uh right before he murdered sharon date and her friends which i was just like oh i was like that's a bummer like yeah. you know um when sharon goes to uh, see the showing of her movie which also very adorable scene where she's just like hey that's me like i'm sharon tate and they're just like yeah right yeah and she's like no 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 and they're like okay go ahead you can come in and watch it um they chose to use the actual film rather than just recreating scenes right. uh which i thought was like fun you know it's, it's like a cute little like oh okay like doesn't again doesn't take away from the movie no. um and we get the gratuitous feet shot which also uh, the thing that i didn't write down here but apparently sharon tate was huge against like what was done because that would have been more realistic as she hated wearing shoes right like to the point where she would wear rubber bands on her feet to make it look like she was wearing sandals because she just unless she had to right but also quinta tarantino loves himself he some loves feet. them feet yeah um a, a very rare thing for a quinta tarantino film was that uh there was a lot of impro- improv you know he's someone very meticulous about what he writes yep. and how it's delivered but um this particularly when rick don forgets his lines when filming lancer and then goes into his trailer and fucking loses it uh leo had a hard time playing the scene as dalton so he just played it as he would right you know um especially because he's the character of dalton is supposed to be an actor with limited range uh, DiCaprio suggested that Dalton forget his lines mid-scene, ironically, to help him stay in character as Dalton. And yeah, that whole scene was just improvised and like one of the most memorable scenes. Yep. Like, I I very much love that scene again, you know, where he's just like drinking and just opens the door and fucking throws the bottle out. Um, this, I, I want to ask you about this because okay. I know you're a Bruce Lee fan, but mm-hmm. China refused uh, mm-hmm. the film. Uh, they didn't want, they didn't release it because, uh, their issue was the way Bruce Lee was portrayed and um, they wanted it to edit so that, you know, they would take that out. And Tarantino was just like, no, I'm not going to edit any of it. And uh, whether or not it was released in China, I'm not sure. I'm someone I don't, I'm I, like Bruce Lee's cool. I guess I, I know nothing about him other than um, my aunt had a poster of Bruce Lee in her kitchen mm-hmm. and, you know, his son, well, you know, was the crow. Yeah. Um, also, like, and I've heard people's complaints, and it's very much like, well, this is a movie. In the same universe, Hitler gets fucking burned to death in, in like, a theater. Right. So it's just, like, didn't really bother me. But I know you're a Bruce Lee fan, so, like, how did how did you feel that? Because also, mind you, like, we, this is, that story is meant to tell, like, this is how, this is, like, Cliff Booth. How bad, yeah. How, how bad badass he, he is, yes. Yeah, I will say, so, yeah, I mean, there's a couple issues people have with that portrayal. One, at that time, like, Bruce Lee wouldn't have had that hair because he was Kato. I, we're getting in the weeds about that shit. But 
Um, I will say this. Um, as I've gotten older, I've figured out that, um, to no fault of my own, a lot of my heroes end up being shitheads. Mm-hmm. Um, gigantic Michael Jordan fan. By all accounts, he's a complete dickhead. <laughs> oh, yeah. In real life, right? Oh, yeah. And I've also come to believe that, like, at least for the majority of the people at that level, at that level of specific, we'll say, greatness at what they do, you need some of that. There, mm-hmm. there needs to be this killer instinct, this fuck everyone else, I'm the best. You need to buy into your own bullshit. You got to buy into extent. your own bullshit. Yeah. And it's very rare that you'll find someone at that level that's also humble and gracious and doubly so if you're someone like bruce lee and you came up in the hong kong film system and then you defied the odds and you know they said oh this won't work in america and then it did and then like even before his death he was starting to become this cultural icon i can kind of believe it now is there any footage of him actually being a dick no or not that i've seen um but I, i i really feel like especially in this era where You've got younger people that maybe don't idolize him as much. He's not the sacred cow that he is maybe to mm-hmm. me. You'll see more negative portrayals of him. Like there was this, um, I think WWE did a movie about Bruce Lee. Um, where, WWE? Yeah, it was a WWE film. And it was something, I can't remember. It was called Something the Dragon. It was about Bruce Lee right when he was making it. And then another monk challenged him to a kung fu fight. Kung fu. Uh, Wong Jackman. And like a lot of people said... That guy beat Bruce Lee, and a lot of people say, no, Bruce Lee beat him, or there was a draw, and there's not really much actual, there's no recorded footage of it, but like the basis of the fight was that he was kind of an arrogant dickhead, and this guy just wanted to teach him a lesson, and there might be some truth to that, and also, if you know Quentin Tarantino, you'll know how much he loves Chinese action cinema, Mm Mm-hmm. And I really do feel like all of his heroes, like you'll see like, um, you know, Sonny Chiba, Sammo Hung, uh, I'm pretty sure he's a really big Jackie Chan fan, uh, things like that. Um, as a fan, he might feel, or Gordon Liu especially, that maybe those people get forgotten in mm-hmm. comparison to the golden idol that is, you know, we'll say that Bruce Lee is like John Cena to him. Yes. That guy doesn't deserve it. He, he's just all Hollywood shit. And what about all these work rate guys that I love? And so I think that was his way of knocking him down a peg or two. I still think he loves Bruce Lee, but yeah, I, I, there's probably a mixture of both. He, he wanted to maybe knock him down and also show how Cliff Booth was a badass, And then also say, Hey, these, these other guys, like every other martial artist that gets portrayed in his movies, they're, killers mm-hmm. right so i think there's a there's an element of truth to it maybe yeah to I, I i thought it i thought it was it got blown a little bit out of proportion like i yeah. know like his family had some shits and it's like listen like and they're in the business of protecting his legacy I yeah get that too. it's like it's like i get that to me at the end of the day it's like this film it's not like post this film like cancel bruce lee he was right. a like you know it was very much just like bruce lee exposed Exactly. It was no expose. It was it was a fun scene to like one highlight why why he wasn't one why he's not allowed on that particular set. Right. Uh you know, because that would be a thing. If you got into a fight with fucking Kato he would be untouchable. Oh my, yeah, yeah, you know, like, come on, nobody wants you on their set. I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a very fun scene. Yeah, I will say, a, like, it really annoyed me the hairstyle. 
Like, mm-hmm. like when you think of Bruce Lee, you kind of think of like that Game of Death style haircut, and like that's not what he had on Green Hornet. But I will say the actor that portrayed him, especially when he was wearing the glasses to kind of hide his facial features, fuck, he looked like him. He nailed the cadence. Like he was a really good Bruce Lee. So speaking more like on Bruce Lee, his line about Cliff being a pretty boy for a stuntman was suggested by Burt Reynolds during a script reading. Uh, Tarantino said, had the line not been Burt's, it never would have made the film as Brad doesn't like characters pointing out how good looking he is. Uh, but because Burt suggested it, how could he say no to including it? Right. Which, you know, makes sense. And then, you know, kind of going more into that scene, uh, you know, because you have Kurt Russell and Zoe Bell, who are the man and wife stunt coordinators um, on the Green Hornet. It's a double joke. Uh, two Tarantino's films. Russell, of course, he was Stuntman Mike in Death right. Proof. Uh, and also as well, Zoe Bell in that. She's a real life. She she in real life is a stunt performer. But right. again, someone Tarantino is included in her films. Um, Which you know, she was great in Death Proof, by the way. Amazing also. in Death Proof. Amazing. Some of the most exciting car stunt work ever. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Zoe Bell also, she got her initial role as within that Tarantino universe. Uh, as Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill 1 and 2, um, which featured the theme to the Green Hornet on its soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we mentioned Burt Reynolds. He was originally cast as George Spahn, the ranch owner, but he died before uh, he was scheduled to shoot his scenes. Uh, Bruce Stern replaced him in the role. So, And then when Rick and Cliff are watching All Streets Are Silent, the actor who played Rick Dalton role in the actual TV episode was Burt Reynolds, which I think they also did a pretty good job. Like Throughout the series, mm-hmm. there's... Um, older TV shows. And they emulate it very uh, well. Yeah, and it's just, they superimpose them in there, and they they all look great. And it's really, you know, like, uh, who is it? Robert Zemeckis did it in Forrest Gump, and mm-hmm. everyone was like, wow. If you go back and watch Forrest Gump, it doesn't look as good. Yeah. This was, like, pixel perfect. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, so uh, Leonardo DiCaprio said he was star, which is this is insane to me. It goes to show you that like as big of a star as anyone is, because it happens a lot. So like again, how we had like McFoley in here today, there was there was a few people at the shop who were just like, <laughs> and I, listen, I get it. Yeah, we all we're all like that to some degree with with some celebrity. They're not jaded old pros like us yet. Exactly, yeah. not yet. Uh, but Leonardo DiCaprio said that he was starstruck to be on set with uh, one of his teenage idols, Luke Perry, a start he felt that at the time was the new embodiment of James Dean. Mm-hmm. He was particularly delighted to be able to reminisce with Luke about Hollywood, about the Hollywood of his youth, and uh, about where their career paths had taken each of them. I think that's really fucking cool because, yeah. like, again, Luke Perry, someone who was, you know, who was a huge star of their time. Mm-hmm. And didn't necessarily become the star that like a Leo became, right? But to Leo, that is the that is the biggest star in the yeah. world. And like the fact that he this was his last this was Luke Perry's last film that he got to tell him and have that conversation with him. It's very much like we say, like give people their flowers, you know, mm-hmm. while they're still here. And I I think that was really fucking awesome. That, well, like, and I I can also imagine too, you know, Quentin Tarantino keeps saying maybe he's got like one more film left in him. I don't believe it, but no. Um, that could have been the start of having more Luke Perry in really good movies, and it's you know it's kind of sad that we don't get to see that. Supposedly, Jungle Boy has a cameo in this film every single time as one of the like uh, random cowboys uh, that like are with Luke Perry. I've tried to look for him in there, and I I think he just didn't make the final cut. Oh. Um, because at, at the time 
of his death he like he posted like oh i'm happy i got to act in this with my dad yeah so i I hope maybe maybe i go on google maybe someone has found it but like yeah maybe he's got his hair up in a bun in a hat somewhere somewhere yeah um so there's a funny thing outside of cliff's house there's like the giant painting where it's just cliff's face very Mm -hmm. very much at first i thought it was jack nicholson but i was like well that wouldn't make which they look very much alike oh especially as they as he gets older oh yeah um castleo in the fucking shining remake uh, so what that actually became is uh, when they were scouting locations, Tarantino visited Lee Van Cleef's home where he noticed was a giant poster of Van Cleef's face hanging in his garage. So, And Tarantino just thought this was funny and was like, hey, we'll do the same thing. I have no idea who Lee Van Cleef is. Um, what? Yeah, oh. but I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, Western action. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. He's in like the... Like, uh, the Man with No Name. Like the- See, I'm not that big of like a Western guy. Yeah. Like in... I watched some of those uh, uh, Clint Eastwood ones. When he's, I was, he's in there. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kurt Russell, again, aside from his role as a stunt coordinator, he's also the off-screen narrator. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, who is just eager to work with Tarantino again, uh, decided to take a 25% pay cut from his usual $20 million salary, which imagine that. Poor boy. You want me to show up in your stupid movie? Give me $20 million. Alright, here you go. Like the power that that commands. Like it's just take two hundred thousand off the top. Oh wait, four hundred thousand. Take four hundred thousand. And they're the just like, all right. Um, oh no, I lost my notes. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. Okay, so you mentioned like the vibe that you get from the Spawn Ranch, mm-hmm. which Tarantino told the crew that he wanted the Spawn Movie Ranch sequence to feel like early scenes in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yes. particularly in terms of design and production like uh, you know the set design and the production which yeah because that's also one of those things too i remember for even now when like i watch it it's just like you get that eerie like oh again in the first time you watch it you're like is this no is cliff it, gonna die and it's not even anything that really changed from like the cinematography but like when, when we mentioned like how the majority of the movie looks there's like this warm like you feel like you're in the california sun on the ranch you feel like you're in the desert like there's something arid and dry about it and something about that's like very like everything's washed out looking and just terrifying it it actually kind of reminded me of um house of a thousand corpses when they get to the firefly ranch and you know they're outside it's daylight and it's just like drenched in that like bone dry you know sepia tone but yeah they they really nailed that horrible horrible feeling so I'm not sure how how familiar you are with this incident, but when Hateful Eight was coming out, the the script got leaked. Mm-hmm. So I have a copy of it. <laughs> so Quentin Tarantino was scheduled to make this film for the Weinstein Company, but severed ties with them, obviously because of the sexual allegations. Right. You know, they came forward about Harvey Weinstein. Um, so to avoid a repeat of the script, because of, of, that's what happened with, with Hateful Eight, that script got leaked, and he almost didn't make the movie. And he didn't want to make movies, period, I think. Exactly, a- yeah. So to prevent that from happening, he wrote a memo to all theatrical studios, uh, summoning them to send one representative uh, to his agent, uh, to his agent's office in Beverly Hills to read you know, the script, the Manson script is what they refer to it, in person at an arranged time and date. The memo also mandated that each representative was required to sign a heavy non-disclosure agreement read the script in person they were not allowed to copy or take the script back 
and present the list of demands and conditions to studio management. This project was already one of the most anticipated and promising projects on board at the time. After reading the script, Warner Brothers, Universal, Sony, Paramount, Annapurna, and Lionsgate were welcome to make a bid for theatrical rights before a second uh, round of bids pitched to Tarantino himself. Sony won the theatrical rights in the bidding war, outbidding its closest rival, Warner Brothers, making it the first uh, David Heyman production. Not to, I, uh, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But yeah, like the fact that he cares that much, that he went out of his way um, to just put that much care shows you how much this guy loves. There's also there's also a story of uh, when they screened it at, at Cannes, at the uh, Cannes, Cannes Film Cannes, Festival, yeah. he begged and implored everyone like please he's like we love movies we love like don't don't leak any of this don't tell anyone just don't talk about it very much in the same way that like when endgame was coming yeah, out endgame that reminds me of endgame and they were just like no no no, don't and spoil it yeah. exactly because again like if you've never seen this movie the first time you watch it like you think okay tarantino movie i kind of know what this is and like just takes a left turn mm-hmm. every single time you know you think you know what's kind of going to happen sort of just takes a left turn well and, and speaking of that studio change if you're a tarantino fan how weird was it not seeing the miramax logo in front of a tarantino movie it just it felt weird understand yeah understandably but yeah. like definitely does feel a little bit weird yeah um and then the last bit of trivia that i had before we'll just go out and get talking into movie because movie is pretty lengthy yeah um is this is the first if quentin tarantino films in which michael madison plays a character who doesn't die uh, Madsen claimed that after filming The Hateful Eight, he jokingly complained to Tarantino about how every character he has, everything he plays, he just ends up dying. Um, and so he gave him a brief role in this film as a response. Because, yeah, Michael Madsen is in this as well, yeah. very briefly. And uh, apparently just, yeah, the only one in which he doesn't die, uh, which... You know, that's a nice... I feel like at that point, it'd be like, no, 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 just keep having me die in all your films. Yeah, it's a um, thing, though. Exactly. So, uh, I think we should talk about the film for a little bit. I mean, we've yeah. been... It's literally been about 53 minutes. We'll, we'll do a quick uh, synopsis of it, and then... So, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it, it begins with an old... Uh, it, with a clip from an old Western TV series called Bounty Law, which... It, is essentially in this universe what he is known for. Right. Um, action star Rick Dalton plays Jake Cahill, who's a bounty hunter, only out to make money for himself. The clip ends with an interview on NBC television with Rick and his stuntman Cliff Booth. Uh, it's Cliff's job. It's Cliff's job to carry Rick's load. <laughs> wink, wink. Yep. You guys know what the fuck we're talking about. Um, cut to Sat- Saturday, February eighth, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, we find Cl- uh, Rick and Cliff at a restaurant where producer Marvin Schwartz meets with Rick. He's a pretty pretty big fan of Rick's work, and he talks about having seen a double feature of him, one where he plays an action star, another one where he plays a GI that, uh, that incinerates a Nazi using a flamethrower, which is, uh, what do they call the, the gun? There's like that... I don't remember. There, there's like that term where it's like, oh, it's, uh, Chekhov's gun. This is very much Chekhov's oh, flamethrower. yeah. Um, Marvin even sees his ultra cheesy music video he's made. Um, Rick's having trouble finding a steady acting gig since Bounty Law was canceled due to his alcoholism. Um, you know, he, the man loves him a whiskey sour. Cliff is now, uh, also Rick's driver because of his drinking problems. Uh, Rick had taken the, the part of the heavy on the TV series Lancer, but Schwartz thinks that Rick is doing himself a disservice by not flying out to Rome and shooting some spaghetti westerns. Schwartz is 
blunt because you know basically his point is like to to generation you will be known as you're known as jk hill this big time actor but to so many other you are just the guy who's going to show up on the show play these bit parts get your ass kicked by adam west on an episode of batman Mm -hmm. and then fuck off like they're not going to take you serious but if you fly over to rome there's these actors who you know you're still a name out there you can make these spaghetti westerns you can make you know your Mm -hmm. money um and that's just what he's kind of trying to get him to do um if, you know he's he's just straightforward with him and he goes outside starts crying it's my favorite part you know they're waiting at the valet for the car and he's like uh come on he's like here a, a cliff he gives him his glasses he's like here take my glasses come on don't cry in front of the mexicans <laughs> he's like i'm a, I'm a fucking has-been yeah ricky oh you know, he's like he's a he's a has-been so uh, they drive home and this is where they find out that their new neighbors are director roman pulaski and this gorgeous new wife sharon tate um Rick perks up a bit because he thinks that the successful Rosemary baby director can help him restart his career. Um, I don't like Roman Polanski kind of a giant piece of shit. And I think by all accounts, Mm -hmm. they, they were just, they did not care to reach out to him like about this movie. Rightfully. So look it up. He's yeah. He's a disgusting pedophile. Yeah um yeah so that night cliff leaves rick to rehearse his lines for lancer while he drives his little trailer where he plays with his pit bull brandy i really like this scene because like there's there's like there's this authenticity about cliff Mm -hmm. you know and i feel this this scene very much highlights that in 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 it that like he for sure has some money you know somewhere yeah. somewhere like he's very much uh, i'm hiding money underneath a mattress mm-hmm. or something like that and you know he has this he's a very he's a simple man he loves to live modestly exactly yeah. he has his you know his, no pretense he lives in a trailer b- behind a drive-in yeah. has his like workout equipment outside makes himself some like mac and cheese which always looks good like i know if i made that myself it would be disgusting sure. but it looks so delicious yeah. the way he's cooking it and you know again check off fucking pitbull over here because brandy yep. uh, it, it's adorable the relationship that he has with well he i love he plops the food in there and he goes wait don't do it and he sits down and he goes okay go my favorite bit i don't know if you look at the dog food the flavors it's like raccoon like all these like <laughs> random yeah. things um polanski you know we see Roman polanski him and sharon go to the playboy mansion this was very much like oh yeah just old hollywood mm-hmm. like you know um and then you know they meet some of their friends jay sebring steve mcqueen, steve McQueen yeah, yeah michelle phillips uh sharon she's dancing outside the pool and this is one of my favorite scene where uh connie stevens comes over uh you know steve mcqueen he's, he's sitting there just smoking and she talks about how sharon is playing polanski to make jay jealous and that Jay's knows it's only a matter of time until he screws up and, you know, Sharon will be his again. You know, he, he very much just explains, you know, he's like, she was engaged to him. Right. And then. Very he, high school gossipy. Yeah, very gossipy. He goes in and then she left him for him. And then he moved over here to be with her because he knows eventually, you know. And then uh, Connie's like, wow, you know, she has a, she really has a type. Short men that look like 12-year-old boys. And that's when, you know, uh, Steve McQueen's like, yep, I never stood a chance. Yeah, and of course, Steve McQueen, at the time, the coolest man on the planet. And again, there's also like a bit about that line where it's like, I could, like, you're a married man, yeah. but I could very much relate to that in, in the sense of like, 
there's been girls who are like I've romantically pursued to, you know, to no success, and then you, and then like I kind of have to sit back and look at the guys they've dated, and it's like all pieces of shit. Yeah, one, they're all pieces of shit because they're not me, but also it's like, yeah, of course, Mm -hmm. I never, like, I never stood a chance, but in my, in my stupid little head, you know, I'm like. And also, uh, that cute Austin Powers outfit that was in Django shows up in the scene, he's wearing it, you know, like that little Lord Fauntleroy outfit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The next day, uh, Polanski leaves the house, Jay stops by to hang out with Sharon. This is when we're introduced to to Charles Manson, Mm -hmm. you know, he's roaming outside jay confronts him he's like oh i'm looking for the previous owner and he's just like oh no they don't live here anymore this is the polanski residence and he's just like okay you know um very ominous exactly uh that same morning cliff drives rick to the uh, drives rick to the set of lancer for his first day shoot uh you know as they arrive rick asks cliff to fix the antenna on his roof as he didn't get reception last night so uh off cliff goes this is also at the same time when you know he's on on the roof fixing it that we see Manson. You know he gives him a a smile and a wave, and Cliff's kind of just like he knows what's up. Yeah, um, and uh, mind you, when he shows up to when they show up to set, um, Rick is apologizing. He's like, you know, like because he just drops him off essentially, like very very right. much in the same way you know you would drop off your daughter, right? You know, for a play date, um, a play date. She wouldn't go on a play date. You would drop off at like the mall or something, yeah. um. And she's like, scram, beat it. Yeah, she's like, get the fuck out of here, old stank. Yeah, hanging around for it. Uh, there's a flashback where you you, you see Rick. Um, he's talking to his pal Randy, of course, played by, um, uh, what's his face? I just mentioned him. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he's the coordinator for the film that he was working on. He wants to get Cliff a job there, but Randy's very reluctant because there's a rumor around town that Cliff murdered his wife and got away with it. And... And they show what looks like a flashback. Could have went either way. Do you, yeah. What do you do? You think he murdered his wife? Uh, I think he did. Yeah. I I yeah. also think he murdered. They his insinuate life. very heavily that he did. Yes, you know, and uh, and you know, and he lets him know. Randy's like, you know, hey man, like I don't care, but my wife Janet, who works with him, he's like, she believes that he got away with murder, and you know, he can't hire him. And uh, again, he's just, we get the so the, the scene is you know his wife is just nagging to Cliff, she's just nagging him to death, and Cliff is holding a harpoon gun in a very precarious position. Yep. Well, you know it's pointed at her, and it it just it cuts away before we can see you know what exactly happens. Yeah. Um, you know we cut back to Randy and Rick, where Rick throws out the old listen. He's a military veteran, like uh, right. which again at that time meant a lot more, like yeah. you know. Um, so Randy hires Cliff and he takes him to the set where, uh, it's, it's Bruce Lee talking to a group of people that are all around the cars and he's talking about wanting to fight Cassius Clay. Um, you know, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Cl- uh, Cliff thinks that he's ridiculous and laughs at him. This annoys Lee who challenges him to a fight, uh, to see who could knock who on the ground first. Uh, I think it's like best two out of three. Yeah. Uh, Lee knocks Cliff down first. Cliff gets up, grabs Lee, and tosses him into Janet's car door. They then fight hand-to-hand until Janet interrupts the two, pissed off that Cliff is fighting her star. Uh, my favorite part where he's like, yeah, I kicked Cato's ass. He's like, you did not kick Cato's ass. He's like, yeah, check out the dent on your car. And that's when she fucking loses it. She's like, what the fuck, man? That's my car. And it's funny. She has like an Australian yeah. accent, so just... It sounds a little bit better. The dead in her car just angers her more, and she fires Cliff on the spot. 
but Rand, which my favorite part, Randy comes in and he's just like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, it's my set. You can't do that. And then he fires Cliff instead. Uh, and, you know, and so that's essentially why he's not allowed on, on the set right. of Lancer because the stunt coordinators, you know, are Randy and Janet and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, cause he's on the set. Also biggest pop in a movie I've ever heard ever is when he goes, when Brad Pitt hops onto the, onto the roof to fix the antenna mm-hmm. And pops his shirt off. Looking sexy as a motherfucker. This guy's like 50 and he looks yeah. amazing. Uh, he he gets a lot of comparisons to Robert Redford, who I don't think is that good. Look, I can see it, but like Robert Redford is like, he's like a, a four compared to Brad Pitt's 10. Maybe Robert Redford when he was younger, but Maybe. like, yeah. I don't I don't see Brad it. is just aging like, look at so Clo- graceful. Like, look at Clooney. He's closer to Redford's age now. Yeah. And like, same thing, Clooney for like, a 60 year old man is you know yep. it's pretty good looking um and as i we mentioned before there's a scene where kind of sharon's just out and about on town picks up a fucking hitchhiker mm-hmm. which like I, I always thought that was more of a thing i've never seen a hitchhiker ever like I, i've been a hitchhiker and i've been picked up really mm-hmm. oh okay i've never where were you going um uh, well to diverge a little bit like when we were younger like my wife and i who was my girlfriend at the time, we would get in fights, and then we only had one car, and then I would just get out and be like, fuck off. And I'd be like, go home, I'll walk home. And one time I did that, and I was maybe like 10 miles away from home. So I was kind of walking, and it was nighttime, and this Mexican guy pulls up in a van, and he goes, you going that way? I'm like, yeah. He goes, hop in. And then he tried talking to me, but he didn't speak English, and I didn't speak Spanish. So we kind of just like spoke quietly, and it was kind of creepy, and I kind of think he thought I was going to blow him or something. <laughs> But then we get maybe like a couple blocks away from where I was like, I'm getting out. And he goes, okay. And he kind of like looked at me weird and then just drove off. But one time, for, and I was going to go see the Winter Soldier, speaking of Robert Redford. Yeah. <laughs> and it was myself and like an ex girlfriend at the time. And she was also very big. Like, we'd get in arguments and I'll get out here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Marvel movies to me are the closest thing that I have to church and religion. Yeah. I don't fuck around when it comes mm-hmm. to Marvel movies. And I remember for this particular one, we were driving up to an AMC in Golf Mill. They, there's an AMC mm-hmm. in Golf Mill. So we're in the suburbs. Man, she lives in the city. Right. And I remember we're arguing and we pull over on some little thing and she's like, I'm getting out here. And I was like, it was like Cynthia, I was like, I'm going to go watch The Winter Soldier. So we can do one of two things. One, you can just, you know, like suck it up. And we go watch this movie, or two, you can get out of the car, and I'm gonna go watch this movie. She gets out the car and starts walking. Yeah, I right. drive. I drive to this fucking theater, and I, I don't know how she got home. She got home. You've made your choice. Yeah, I made my choice. To this day, do not regret it because Winter Soldier, an amazing movie, yeah. and her was not a very nice person. Nope. So shout out uh, Robert Redford. Yeah. Um, but we see Sharon. She's out and about. She goes to a bookstore to pick up. Um, a gift for you know her husband, which the book that she's purchasing, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio owns like that. Act- I think it was his actual book because right. it's like some fancy old time book. Um, you know, she walks by a movie theater and sees that it's playing the Wrecking Crew, a movie that she has a role in. So she goes to buy a ticket, but then again asks if she can get in for free because she's a star in it. Which the girl who working box office like such so, like just so just like yeah. Yeah, whatever. Sure. Okay. Like the one where she's like, "Can you can you go buy the poster so people can know who you are?" It's like, 
what a fucking prick. Yeah. Um, but the manager comes over and, you know, he recognizes her from another one of her films, Valley of the Dolls. He invites her in. Um, you know, it's just a cute scene. You know, yeah. she's in her scene. Margot Robbie, adorable. Uh, she's Aussie also. Mm-hmm. There's, you know how good of an actress she is? There's this movie called um, About Time where uh, the, the guy named Do- uh, Domhnall Gleeson, he's uh, in Star Wars mm-hmm. as a redheaded Nazi. He's one of the Weasley brothers. In that film, he has the hots for her, and like she does such a good job at convincing me that he could actually like both of them great yeah. jobs because he like pursues her romantically and like wins. There's something about Australian actors and actresses that like they really nail that American voice. Like we couldn't do, we couldn't have a lot of American actors convincingly play Australians. It would be really corny. I for like, oh, it might, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'd be very like, it'd be borderline offensive. Yeah, um, I've tried to perfect the New Zealand accent forever, but it doesn't. Yeah. You know, that has not worked. But you know, so we kind of just see this. You know, her just watching the movie. You know, again, a, a fun, cute little scene doesn't really. Even watching this, I'm like, okay, see, so fucking Manton gonna creep up on her mm-hmm. or what? Like just waiting. You know, well, and you're like, oh, she's enjoying the little time she has left. <sighs> Yeah. Uh, you know, meanwhile, Rick's on a lunch break on the set of Lancer. Um, and he meets my f- one of my favorite actors in this entire movie. I didn't get her name, but uh, her name is Trudy, his eight year old co star. She's a method actor and she's just reading a book about Disney. Rick's smoking a, a cigarette. Uh, oh, uh, I don't know if he got to the part yet where. Oh, yeah, no, no I, I think I might have passed it up. So when, when he's on the set, he's in um, wardrobe. Right. And the director comes and he's talking about like, yeah, we're going to put you in this wig and like, you know, put this, all this face makeup on you and this jacket. And he's like, but then people won't know who I am. And he goes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that. I yeah. it very much in the Tarantino fashion of like, yeah, I don't care if they like the, if the name recognition, like you're a good actor and I want people to see that. Right. You know, and to him, it's a little like, oh, he, he's a little taken aback at this because at this point in his career, he is solely used to like, oh, we want J.K. Hill to come in and be the right. bad guy for this. You know, not even uh, Rick Dalton. No, right. no, no. We want J.K. Hill to come in and get his ass kicked by, you know, this star or whatever. Yeah. And he's kind of just like taken aback. Um, you know, so he's smoking a cigarette and then asks if he can read his book next to her. They both start talking about books, what books they're reading. Uh, you know, this is when Rick gets a little emotional. He tells Trudy about the book he's reading. The protagonist's uh, decline in life. It hits hits home. It's mm-hmm. basically his story, and um, it, they have a nice little scene. You know, where she's just like, kind of encouraging him. Like, oh, he, uh, he calls her like sweetie or something. She's like, I don't like to be called that. But yeah, she's like, I don't like to be called that. But like, because you're emotional, like, I'll I'll let you. Well, and also how, how mature this girl is. She, she's actually playing like a really good psychologist at this point where she's leading him to his epiphany that he's the guy in the book, right? And that's what makes him cry. And she's like, no, no, it's okay. And it, there's a part of me that thinks she knew what she was doing as a character mm-hmm. um, because she's so... And that's what makes her such a good actor as a child. Like, she's getting human behavior very well, so... Yeah, great actress. Great. A great actor. Apparently, yeah. a great actor. Uh so you know lunch is over and they begin shooting there's a scene where he rick has a scene with the series lead uh james stacy who plays johnny madrid of course this is timothy oliphant mm-hmm. who, timothy oliphant a treasure a treasure as well love him love him he was 
was it him? He it was him in uh, Mandalorian. No, it's him with the movie with uh, what's his name, uh, Emil Hirsch. It's like the girl next door. Mm. He plays like I'm pretty sure that's him. He plays like such an asshole, like a bad guy. Where it's like the girl, it's like Emil Hirsch, the girl next door. She's like some like porn star. She's like in play. Yeah, she's like a porn star or something. And like she's still in high school, and she falls for him, and he's like her manager. Is it with like, Alicia Cuthbert. Yes. It's yeah. old movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a very old movie, but I just always remember like Timothy Oliphant. And there's another actor who looks like Timothy Oliphant. Josh Duhamel. It might have been Josh Duhamel. Yeah. It probably was Josh Duhamel. Probably. But listen, yeah. Emil Hirsch, regardless, great in that. Yeah. Um, so Rick's, uh, you know, he again, he, he started drinking, which causes him to forget his lines. Um, you know, there's it's the scene that they're playing where he's just like, uh, you know, it's, oh, is it your, your daughter here? Yeah, you're like... <laughs> Oh, fuck there's he's like your tortilla playing daughter it's like get me some frijoles yeah um oh, fuck. that spicy little chili pepper or yeah something, something like that there's yeah. like a particular line he says where he's like um he said i won't hurt her this time they're get i want her to come play her little chili pepper heart out yeah something like that but you know he's 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 forgetting his lines, and they're you know, like and he's it's, nervous. Oh, super nervous! Yeah. Like it's all right, just keep going. Like we'll we'll replay it, and he has a just he has a meltdown. He's like, no, 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 I I can't do it. He's like, let's just cut, please, please, let's just cut. And then you know, of course, this is where we go back to him in his trailer having the meltdown. Uh, you know, it seemed that we mentioned that he improvises. Um, you know, so the antennas fix. Cliff drives home from rick's place at this point we've seen this this group of girls you know led by pussycat um and he keeps specifically pussycat cliff keeps like eyeing her they keep making eye contact and um everywhere she everywhere anytime he sees her she seems to be hitchhiking as we mentioned like dave you know very much you know both of you guys long beautiful hair uh and this time he's heading in the same direction, so he stops and picks her up. They chat, and you know she says she's going out to the Spawn Ranch, uh, and you know coincidentally that's where they used to shoot films about eight years ago. Um, there's a scene here, you know, whether in the car, like there's clearly some sort of like you know sexual chemistry between the two. And at one point she's like, "Do you want me to like blow you?" And there's like a very sweet scene where Cliff, where he's just like, "How old are you?" And she's her clearly not eighteen. Like won't tell her her real age, right. um, which you, you and the sad thing is you got to mention you got to imagine back then he probably would have got the blue. Well, job. Margaret Qualley, uh, who who plays Pussycat, one of the things she mentioned. She's like, wow, like a lot of like a lot of guys don't even bother to ask. Yeah. So like the fact that he went out of his way to like you know again shows how despite his gruff exterior, like he's actually a genuinely good person. Um, they drive up to Spawn Ranch. Cliff notices the place is just a but. It's basically a hippie commune at this point, and it's all like these teenage girls and women. And Pussycat wants Cliff to wait around so, so that he can meet Charlie, but Charlie's not there. Right. You know. Uh, and at this point, again, it's like it gets it's real tense. You know, because uh, Cliff's like, I want to see, uh, I want to see my old friend, um, George, George Spawn. Yeah. And then they say, well, he can't because he's sleeping. But he's like, well, I'm going to go anyway. And he, you know, he walks up to George's house. And this is where we meet Squeaky, played by Dakota Fanning, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and she won't let him in because he's sleeping after she fucked his brains out. Uh, and he's just like, well, 
I'm going to come in anyway. Like he's making it known. Like I'm going to force my way into, into this place and, and go see George. And she's like, all right, go ahead. Opens a fucking door. This place, disgusting. There's like open food with mice just eating Squaller it. Squalor everywhere. D- oh, disgusting. Yeah. Um, and she mentioned, she's like, he's asleep now because, uh, you know, we're watching TV later and I don't want him to be uh, asleep when uh, we're out during TV time. Very tense. You know, he, he he's showing up to the room, opens the door, and, and there he is, George Spawn sleeping. But, of course, George, one, he's old. Yeah. probably doesn't remember but also he's blind so cliff is sitting there letting him know who he is and he's just like what uh, sure like okay yeah i remember you um and you know cliff's like are, are, are they taking advantage of you and he's just like no like that's my squeaky i love squeaky and then you know he's just like all right now get the fuck out of here so he comes outside and all like all these fucking they're watching they're just watching they're just glaring at him and pussycat is pissed so she's like like what the fuck was that you know um so he gets to his car and it's been fucking knifed mm-hmm. flat tire and uh he gets he he takes the car jack out and throws it down on the ground and there's the one hippie guy who his character I, I forgot the name of his character but that guy so I guess during this scene, you see a farmhand in the background, someone who's actually working there, who is based on an actual person who at the time the Spawn Ranch mm-hmm. was like the one guy who was like, George, I think these people are fucking crazy. This, the character, this hippie guy murdered that guy in real life, spread his body parts everywhere. And it wasn't until like, you know, everyone starts getting arrested that right. they're like, you know, it, it will be better on you if you let us know what happened. He's like, all right, I'll tell you where to find the body parts that I scattered everywhere. Um, that Manson family, no joke. But, you know, he, he tells him to to fix the flat tire, and he responds with, fuck you. Cliff punches him square in the jaw, just beats the shit out of him in front of all these girls. And there's like, you know, and they try to come towards him. He's just like, you fucking move. He's like, I'll fucking kill him. Or it's something along those lines. Right. And, you know, they're just Very watching badass. him. There's the one girl who he's clearly like romantically involved with, just watching her boyfriend, her lover, just totally punked out in front of this fucking dude. Um, you know, he's changing the tire, and one of the girls rides away to, to get Tex, who's, I don't, I guess George or uh, like Charlie's like right hand man. Charlie's right hand man for all intents and purposes. So they're like, hey, there's trouble at the ranch, and he shows up. Cliff's already driving away. Um, you know, at this point we come back to the set of Lancer and you know, Rick is finally shooting the scene, you know, with Trudy where he has her on his lap and um she's his hostage basically, you know, uh what's his face? Um Luke Perry, you know, he's talking to Luke Perry's character. Um he improv- it, it's just them kind of going back and forth and you know, he throws Trudy on the ground and very much just playing a heel. He's yeah. very much playing the bad guy. And, you know, they're like, and cut. And everyone's praising him for performance. This scene in particular was in all the promotional yeah. trailer for us where Tweety comes over and she's like, that was the best performance I've ever seen in my life. And Rick starts crying and, like, very much he got his mojo back. Yeah. And what's funny is, like, it's because he respected her so much. Because if you think about it, like, she's not probably seen much. So for her to say that, that would be like your, that would be like your kid saying, this is the best set of waffles i've ever eaten in my life and you're like how many waffles have you eaten but to him you know this lady's serious and represents everything he didn't think he was so he took it like as the best praise he could ever get 
Oh yeah, very yeah. very awesome scene. Um, and then we get a voiceover. It's six months later. Um, you know, Kurt Russell. He's saying that Rick took the offer to film some spaghetti westerns in Rome. Um, Cliff came along for the ride. While there, Rick marries an Italian film actress, mm-hmm. uh, Francesca Capucci. He also gets pretty heavy because he enjoys uh, pasta. Yeah. Um, you know, Rick and Cliff, they they return to Los Angeles after you know having made those four films out there, uh, and then rick rick can no longer pay for cliff to be you know his driver he can't pay him for his he can't pay for that and his wife and his new wife um because i guess he spent most of his money on like where they on their house yeah and all the fineries exactly um therefore it's time for basically for both of them to go their separate ways and it is a little bit of a bummer because like as much as like yeah you're my employer is like an employee employer relationship they're friends yeah so, um, you know, they want to have one last night out on the town. Um, and they go to, you know, they hit the town. Um, what is it? The men hit the town before crashing for the night where his wife, she's suffering from jet lag. So she stays home. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, like again, so they go out, it's like a Mexican restaurant, I yeah. believe. And at Having the same, shots. exactly yeah. at the same time, um, Sharon Tate, she's having, uh, she's also out with some friends. This particular scene, uh, Jay is having a conversation with their friends at the table, talking about how much he makes per day, and it's something like, I think he says it's like something between like five and twelve thousand dollars a day because he's a he's a hairdresser, right? And I'm just like insane. Oh my god! Like the amount of money back like, then, back then, yeah, insane. Um. You know, so they go out drinking. They leave the they leave the car there at the restaurant because they're both fucked up. Um, Rick and uh, Cliff. Yeah. They go back to his house, and uh, Cliff he because they had left the dog Brandy there to, to watch over Francesca. He takes the acid uh, lace cigarette that he bought earlier in the mm-hmm. film, and he's like, "Oh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go take the dog for a walk." Cliff stays inside, like making drinks or whatever. Uh, at this point, Tex and uh, you know, you know, Tex and his followers. I, I mentioned them earlier. Yeah, the uh, girls, Katie, Sadie, and Flower Child. They show up, like scouting, scouting Sharon Tate's house. This is the night they're gonna fucking come and kill right. her. Um, and it's just this old piece of shit station wagon that's like making all this noise. And to get up to where they live, there was like a very specific like little cliffside yeah. um, road. And their orders, you know. Are, to kill Sharon and her friends, but Tex mufflers are broken. It's making so much noise. Rick comes out all pissed off and he's screaming at them, calling them hippies, telling them, you know, to beat it. One of my favorite scenes is with, like after this, you know, cause Tex agrees to leave and he puts it in reverse. Once they're at the bottom, they recognize him. They're like, was that fucking JK Hill? Um, and there is a scene where they're like, yeah. And Sadie being one of the younger ones clearly does not recognize who she is. And she's just like, I'm sorry, I don't recognize every fascist on the TV that was like in the 50s. And they agree instead, like, let's go fucking kill him instead of Sharon Tate. Um, it's at this point, you know, Flower Child, who again played by Maya Hawk, she's like, oh, I left my knife in, in the car. Let me go back and get it. And she just leaves. Like, she's clearly not into it. She is shitting her pants. But the remaining three are like, no, we're going to go kill Rick. Um, Tex and Katie break in through the front while Sadie goes in through the side. 
Um, by now, Cliff, he's back from his walk. He's in the house. He's, you know, feeding the dog. Um, or he's about to feed the dog, actually. He <laughs> yeah. has the can in his hand. He sees them. He doesn't know if they're real or not because he's tripping out. Like, he's yeah. just straight up tripping balls. Um, Tex pulls out a gun on Cliff. Uh, again, because he's so high, he has no fear. Uh, you know, and this is, he's like, I've seen you before. He's like, uh, Rex, uh, uh, he's like, Tex. He goes, nah, that's too stupid. You know, he delivers a line about like, oh, I'm here. I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's work. Um, and he whistles and the dog, a brandy just runs and attacks Tex, bites him in the groin. Uh, Sadie tries to run at Glyph and he just fuck it with, with her knife. And he just punches her in the face. Brandy goes over to her next. Cliff stomps Tex's face uh, until Katie takes her knife and stabs him in the hip. Cliff gets up and uh, insane. Yeah. In the auditorium, when this was happening, people just collectively losing their, sh- losing their shit. Again, he throws the can. Um, he's just beating the shit out of these people. But with Katie, just smashes her face repeatedly into the fireplace mm-hmm. mantle and just anything that he can until she is just dead. Um, meanwhile, Sadie gets up and just stumbles outside. Rick, who at this point, throughout the movie, he would rehearse his lines by playing, recording them, playing them, and just kind of going over them. Uh, at this point, he's just outside, though, just headphones on, listening to his music, and she just fucking runs out, scaring him. She jumps into the pool you know, with a knife in her hand. You know, she's just screaming at the top of her lungs. So I mentioned the flamethrower earlier. He runs out, runs into the shed, pulls out his flamethrower, and burns her to death. Uh, paramedics show up. The police arrive. You know, they take statements from everyone. They take Cliff to the hospital. And, you know, Rick wants to come along. But Cliff's like, no, nah, no. Like, just come visit me in the morning. You know, go check out on Francesca. who She's completely freaked out. Um, you know, but she takes some, some sleeping pills and uh, goes back to sleep. Brandy's there watching over her. You know, Rick says goodbye to Cliff in the ambulance, and then he spots Jay from Sharon's Gate. You know, he comes over. He's like, hey, man, like, what's, you know, what's going on? He explains what happened, and Jay reveals that, you know, he knows who Rick is. And Sharon, you know, we mentioned how in real life Leo was such a big fan of, uh, you know, uh, like in Luke Perry. Sharon, she's a big fan of of Rick Dalton. And, you know, he's Jay's always teasing her about her neighbor, uh there's like the gate the gate intercom and she's asking him oh is she okay what happened she invites him into you know hey do you want to come up for a drink and rick you know finally gets to gets what he wanted this whole time you know he wants to get the title card you get the title card you know clearly we've been ranting about this movie longer than we have with most yeah i love this movie it's a meaty film so very much a meaty film like where, where you mentioned it ranks what fourth among like your yeah i'd say probably fourth um i don't know i'd have to actually quantify it it's definitely no. not at the bottom um but yeah like to sum up like how i feel about the movie um it, it was clearly tarantino's every movie tarantino does is a love letter to normally some genre or some set of filmmakers or whatever this was his love letter to hollywood mm-hmm. and you know say what you will and like people have said things about hollywood since the beginning of since it was hollywood land right um but there is something that we romanticize about it that you know these people became our heroes on screen they were the basis of like our modern day mythologies and 
there's something we'll always look back on fondly and say, "Wow, that those guys were like the golden gods of the time." And that's 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 in Quentin Tarantino's DNA, and he really wrote a very beautiful love letter. And some people didn't like that twist at the end, but you know, I th- I think it was a nice way to take creative liberty about something that was tragic and then make a happy ending that could not possibly exist in our reality, right? So I love that. I love pretty much every performance in this movie. Um, it's cool that Rick Dalton got a... He got even like a third chance because he kept saying, if, if only I could get an audience with them, I'll, I'll be back. And, you know, he got the second chance with the Spaghetti Westerns and now maybe now hopefully Roman Polanski in this universe isn't a pedophile piece of shit and he gets to do some good movies. Um, the And the one thing, you know, I mentioned, you know, artists having imposter syndrome. That's the thing that we don't really understand. And, and actually, we mentioned Mick Foley was here. We were talking about Cobra Kai. And it was weird, you know, I don't know if you've watched Cobra Kai. No. No. So in Cobra Kai, they kind of subvert it. Johnny, who was the bad guy and was like the rich kid, he's now kind of down on his luck. Danny, who was kind of the poor new kid, he now owns all these. I mean, listen, even if you watch Karate Kid, you know. Yeah. Maybe that's how you view it. I mean, listen, I don't think. uh, Well, they they flip it. And so um, over the course of the show and the seasons that we've seen, they've come to this understanding. And Danny's like, wow, you really felt that way? I I had no idea. I thought you had everything. And really, your dad's a piece of shit and you're working through stuff. And Johnny, the same way. Oh, wow. I didn't. I didn't. And so, like, we look at people and it's just weird, like you said. Rick Dalton's sitting there thinking, my life is over. I'm a hack. I'm a has-been. I'm never going to make it. If only I could go see those guys, my new neighbors. And the whole time, Sharon Tate's like, I'm a huge fan of Rick Dalton. I'm, a, I'm scared to talk to him. And we really don't know who's in what position. And we, we make all these assumptions. And, you know, sometimes we turn those assumptions into animosity or envy or dislike. You know, we, we rub each other the wrong way. And we just really don't take the time to just like be empathetic humans to each other and had rick dalton just nutted up and went up and said hey i'm rick dalton i'm a big fan they would have they would have been fast friends immediately and there would have been none of this hand-wringing and shit so um i think it was cool that they represented that story and you got to see you know they had appreciation for each other and in the end you know we got to see the happy ending that didn't happen for sharon tate but um no, it, it was really good. And like you said, I love that they use second generation actors um, while also giving like his stable, like really good uh, stuff. And I don't know, like watching this movie, all I kept thinking of was, you know, Quentin Tarantino keeps saying he's got maybe one more movie and that's it. And there's going to be a time where he will make his last movie and we're going to look back on Tarantino movies as like, wow. That really was the golden age of movies. I mean, you know? to me, he is he is the best filmmaker ever. In, in in my opinion, yeah, I can't think of too many other people. And I know it's very much like uh, you like I don't want to say like insult, but kind of like a bro thing to be like, no, he's the best. But like, I'm sorry, you know, dude doesn't miss. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of the knocks on him have been like, you know, style over substance. And I will say, yeah. That happens a lot. He does put a lot of style. But, like, when I think of the best moments, we'll say probably the biggest offender would be the Kill Bills, right? Yeah. 
there's blood shooting everywhere and you know but it's also him paying homage it's homage to stuff that maybe doesn't get the the light of day and and to say that it's style over substance is to suggest that he's taking shortcuts and if anyone is not taking shortcuts in Hollywood and if anyone is a student of other directors and different you know f- ways to frame and edit and sound editing and down to granular granular things like what type of music I'm going to put in this specific spot you know you could very well be describing Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. you know what I mean? that's that's the level that he's at and I think you take any of the best directors on the planet and every single one of them is going to give Quentin Tarantino props whether they say he's the best or not you know that's another story but there's not one director that says that guy's garbage you know what i mean that guy does all he does is he copies other movies there's elements to that um but it's less copying and it's more yeah it's loving homage and i just i can't imagine seeing it's weird because him and kevin smith both kind of came out of that same class of people and they were both considered um like the new revolutionaries and and i think like i know you're a big kevin smith fan but i think kevin smith kind of took a little bit of a different route than quentin tarantino did and i don't think he's as revered as quentin is but it's just it's weird that 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 kind of timeline of directors they were all like we're gonna make exactly what we want to make i don't care if the studio wants to make like a tentpole space alien movie. I'm just going to make whatever the fuck I want to make. And they did it, and they they marched to the beat of their own drummer. And for Tarantino specifically, like, to great success. And like I said, even even my least favorite Tarantino movie is a pretty good fucking movie. Yeah, no. By all accounts. That's something that you mentioned, like, Kevin, him and Kevin Smith are contemporaries. They came up literally at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah many people might not revere kevin smith uh quentin tarantino reveres kevin smith exactly. so it's one of those things where it's like yes you know uh, so yeah so to be able to say that guy's a hack when they always say like real recognizes real right but mm-hmm. like greatness there's a reason why michael jordan gravitated towards kobe bryant like he saw i see the greatness in you i know what greatness is myself and i see it in you and so yeah i mean I went from hating this movie to I can't really say too many bad things about it. Um, and I'm finding that out like in my older age. Like I'll watch something and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I like that. And if I think about it, like Atlantis, another one of those, mm-hmm. discounted it wholesale. And then as I watch it, and I think my opinion changed as we were talking about it. I was like, you know, this actually wasn't that bad. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you see something, listen, if you think it's complete garbage, don't watch it again. But if you think there's something to it, give it another view. Give yourself some perspective. Give yourself some time. And maybe look at it from a different angle. Because I promise you, like like a movie like this, if you take your prejudice away and you, you give it another look through a different lens, you'll see something that you didn't see before. Mm-hmm. Something that you took for granted or something that you didn't, you know, you just went in saying, oh, fuck this movie. And there's, like, like I said, I can watch this movie in the background while I'm working. And there's just something beautiful about it. The mu- The music was perfect. Um. Yeah, I I highly recommend it. I th- I think it's very much worth a bunch of merit. So no, very very much. And like you know, I I'm always going to recommend this movie when it when anyone you know like 
oh what movie should i watch it's like watch that one it, it's you know it's a little on the heavier side mm-hmm. as far as like run you know runtime goes but i definitely think it's worth it. like you like you mentioned it took him five minutes five years mm-hmm. to fucking to to bang this movie out and maybe it takes another five years so maybe you know 2024 is when you know his yeah. I last hope i hope it's not another star wars star trek movie because he was talking about doing a Star Trek movie. Like, please don't. You know what I would love if he just fully committed to like um, an old like black exploitation movie. Because he clearly loves that genre. And like having like Samuel L. Jackson in it, I think he could like the same way that Michael J. White did with like Black Dynamite. I think he could like knock it out the. It'd be controversial, or just like an actual full on like ninja slash kung fu slash samurai epic. He, he kind of dipped his toes in with kill bill but like i'm trying to think of like all these genres that he could tackle and like knock it out the park and he hasn't stumbled once i think i mean honestly he hasn't really stumbled into like horror movie i mean i like i think i think you could do pretty well on that yeah to me fantasy booking kill bill three you know bring bring in maya hawk as Mm -hmm. you know her daughter fully grown up like there's no shortage of black actresses that are fucking amazing that you could bring in, you know. Have Vernita Green's daughter kill the bride, and then you have something you know, like yeah. there. There is there is something there, you know. There there's definitely something there. Yeah. So to me, it's like ultimately, you know, Kill Bill Volume Three is you know his swan song. It's what he goes out on. Yeah. Or much like you know, rest, wrestlers who say all the time they're retired come back like if we get another if we get another three films out of tarantino i won't be like but he said he was only gonna make yeah you know x amount of we films. gotta enjoy him while we have him exactly so yeah i mean i can't imagine anyone having not seen this film sat around for <laughs> almost two hours and be like uh yeah, maybe I should go watch yeah. that. I imagine most of you guys have seen it. Yeah. So yeah, man, go go and rewatch it. I promise you, you guys will enjoy it upon second watch. Yeah. Um. But hey, guys, uh, you know, for this week's uh, Scrump and Stank family video, I've been Scrump, and this is Stank, and we'll see you guys next week here uh, at the family video. <laughs>